Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 468. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Michelle Neveres. Michelle is CEO of Beyond EI, providing customized tools and a wide range of learning programs that are based on emotional intelligence. Beyond EI's mission is to democratize the practical application and wisdom of emotional intelligence to affect positive change and bring about the best in ourselves, each other, and our time together on this planet. Michelle is author of the new book, Beyond Emotional Intelligence, A Guide to Accessing Your Full Potential, published by Wiley. In this conversation with Michelle, we discuss her journey becoming CEO of Beyond EI, her work with the legendary Daniel Goleman, conscious awareness, empathy, how to rewire the brain, and how to turn non-believers of the power of EI into believers. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Michel Nivares, un placer, a pleasure to have you on your show, my show, your show, my show. So um, I wanted to get you on because you've just finished this book, written this book, Beyond Emotional Intelligence, a guide to accessing your full potential. Seems like a most worthy book for, for these times today. Uh, you're also the CEO of Beyond EI, Beyond Emotional Intelligence. So you've had a very varied career, and I, I would love for you to, to recount us your journey towards becoming the CEO of Beyond EI and what might have been the pivotal moments. And I wanted to take one quote out of your book. What constipating memories do you have that led you to become the CEO of Beyond EI? <laughs> I love that you picked that quote. Um, that was the toned down version. <laughs> <laughs> Your editor accepted this one. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, and, and I always tease that the 200 pages I had to uh, redact, um, that's actually, those are the juiciest bits of the book. Those are the outtakes, so to say, with with the real stories, you know. But, but anyway, um, yeah, I, I feel like I've been on a pretty circuitous life journey um, that has many unexpected dips and turns, but ultimately I would say there are three factors that led me to start the business that I'm in today. And first and foremost, um, would be sort of my non-traditional background in Tibetan Buddhism. I, uh, uh was a religion major as an undergrad and after I graduated Ma. at Bryn Mawr, um, I, I moved to Nepal and I helped start a university focused on Tibetan Buddhist philosophy and meditation. And that university is still going today. Nice. Um, it's called Rangjung Yeshi Institute, which um, in Tibetan means self-existing wakefulness. And that is really the essence of my work today relative to what it is we have influence over, which is sort of this core question that's driven me both personally and professionally for, well, I guess I'm 49 years old now, so. A good long but, conscious time. Right, right, or, or unconscious as the case may be uh, for part of that, I suppose. But um, 
Yeah. And then I did a stint um, in what I call corporate life and worked across various industries. I was teased that I picked the industry that had a knack for going on its ear while I was in it, whether that was dot-com and consulting or investment management in the 08, 09 crash, healthcare at the uh, onset of Obamacare, um, and yada, yada. So, but uh, ultimately I realized as I was working in these um, constipating positions, uh, the more senior level I got, the, the less of a fit it really was uh, for me personally and the less gratifying the work. So um, I took a bit of a detour and worked with Dr. Richie Davidson for about four years prior to this venture I'm in now, which was a big, beautiful eye-opener for, for the work that I'm doing today. Beautiful. I imagine there'd be a fun story within that. And um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a sort of, um, I don't know, it's maybe a first level question, which is, do you think everyone is or can be good at their heart, at their core? Or maybe if I could add one more piece, or is being bad not a necessary part of our existence? Great questions, both of them. Um, I not only personally, personally believe we are good at the core, but it would seem even from a neuroscience standpoint that there is compelling evidence to suggest that at our core, we are good. Um, and that we have at least good, you know, we need to define good, right? But pro-social behaviors, you know, behaviors that work in service of and benefit for others. And, but as to your second question, I think um, we learn things in contrast to other things. And, and so there are these, I, I kind of, uh, live and think in spectrums of behavior. And so bad is a relative concept, <laughs> depending on context and so many other factors. And so I think of it a little bit like the texture that helps us understand the bigger picture. Hmm. I, I studied women's studies when I was at university. And part of that, we would look at groupings, um, five-year-olds together, five-year-old girls, five-year-old boys, five-year-old girls and boys, and, and looking at how those interactions were. And then, of course, even earlier, how, what behaviors were going. And I kind of pit good and bad. Of course, if you don't know what good, bad is, you don't get good. And, and I, I, I have a strong feeling that within our conflicting selves or our paradoxes that live within us, at the core, there is the individual and then the group to which I belong. And if I'm too much subsumed by the group to which I belong, the individual doesn't exist. And I kind of relate on one level, the individual to the community, good to bad, selfish gene or whatever, if you want to go to the Hawkins kind of, or Dawkins, sorry, uh, perspective, or life and death, with, right. with death being some finity that we have trouble getting to grips with and, and seems to be the darkness. And let's hope that light is life is the lightness. But at some level, we always know that the darkness is there. And, and is it not possible that we inherently, intrinsically have to have within us bad and good? 
Well, I, I tend to think about these things in terms of what are we intrinsically mm-hmm. versus what is a vehicle that we use to move through this world essentially as embodied consciousness. And so good and bad um, are not only concepts and, and constructs, but they're highly contextual, meaning um, you could define them in any number of ways. I like to, to sort of lay a stake in the ground relative to this idea of benefiting or harming another person or oneself. Um, it seems as good a stake as any, logical, practical even. Um, even visible at some level. Even like, visible at some measure, level. Measurable, measurable somehow. Yes. You know, that, yeah, has it's, done it's, bad, that has done bad to somebody. Exactly. And so, but all other constructs, apart, for example, that definition of good and bad are socially constructed and learned behaviors by and large. Um, And so, so I think, you know, having a kind of a tight definition that we could agree on is helpful because everything else is, is truly, like I said, it's part of what we learn from the moment really we're in the womb, you know, we have modeled to us uh, what is correct in this situation, what is incorrect. And in the absence of experience or uh, having had something modeled or lived before, then we're going to look to those around us to, to see what, what do I do here? How do I behave? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't know that these things are intrinsic as much as they are a an output of, of of being an embodied consciousness moving through space and time, seemingly. It, this, this is my filter through which I I'm observing the world, if you will, and yeah. I think in 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 the way that we have navigated, you talk the word you use the word vehicle, have gone through the the existential crisis, what I I believe for the pandemic, mm-hmm. and is is somehow being reflected also in in what we seen going on in in ukraine yeah we are we are being forced to understand more about our finitude in a world where we've been always getting older dying later pushing off death cryogenically whatever we can to have immortality whereas this mortality thing Mm -hmm. is pretty real There's no, there's no abstraction to that. I mean, it is a very real experience when you talk about happening to you. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I feel we've, as a society, this is where I feel we, we've lost touch with that. And if good is all we look for, in other words, we don't embrace the bad, Mm -hmm. then it kind of gets dystopian or distended anyway, because Mm -hmm. we're not able to accept who we really are which sure. includes some intrinsic bad. That's sort of sure. my understanding. And I would love for you to, you know, layer into that. Of course, disagree as you wish, Michelle. <laughs> well, first of all, I love the topic of death. Um, I, I, there isn't a day that goes by in my life where I don't think about death multiple times throughout the day. And especially before bed at night. Um, so I love the topic. We can totally talk about that. Um, I don't know if I think there's something intrinsically bad. I I think, you know, my position really is that 
that the smallest common denominator of what we each have intrinsic to ourselves as well as available by way of our own, what I'll call agency or ability to choose is our awareness. And it simply becomes a matter of connecting with that awareness and being able to maneuver it in such a way that we would actually have agency. Um, that takes practice. And frankly, I think even a lifetime isn't enough uh, of practice. Um, I think the bad pieces, so to say, are simply uh, a, a function of how we are most habituated to perceive reality. And that as is subject and object. Everything is in relationship to the physicality of who we are in this life and our body by necessity, because we have to be able to navigate reality, uh, both physically and psychologically. So of course, there is a subject object uh, duality in place, even how our senses are set up. So awareness, on the other hand, does not have to be geared in that self other type dynamic, it can actually, it has the capacity to be aware of itself. And that is our superpower, if you ask me. Mm. Well, at some level, it's the, the meeting, the congruence between those, perhaps the duality, and that basket, which is me, and to have that awareness. So um, uh, looking at your book, Beyond uh, EI, I thought of a subtitle for it, which is how to rewire the brain. I wanted you Love to it. react to my subtitle. <laughs> well, the title's the funniest part about my book. I mean, I am humorous, but the, the how we derived the title because I had really very little to do with it. Um, so I, I know how that goes like... with publishers. <laughs> Oh my Believe Lord. Me. I felt like, yeah. could we at least make it a little bit more what the book is about? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I negotiated like hell for it and lost. And then at the last moment, I had a decision I could make finally, because it was, it was called emotionally intelligent habits with the same subtitle for the most of the life of the book until the last week before it went to print. Um, because of all of the, these changes with my company and, and the work I'm doing. Sure. But look, I love the, you know, your subtitle uh, for the book. I, I, I believe with all of my being that we are constantly shaping our brains uh, with what we think, say, do again and again. We have so many hidden patterns of uh, perception, which is really the essence of what I've tried to write about. You know, we think about outer habits, right? And we have, you know, beautiful work that's been done in this space by people like James Clear, for example, whose work I love, by the way. And yet we don't talk about often the thing that allows us to make habit change, which is this linchpin of awareness. And so I've tried to write the counterpart to what are those inner perceptual habits of how we process our reality again and again, without even really realizing what we're doing or having a conscientiousness about it. Well, I definitely want to get into that, Michelle. Um, 
Uh, and I, but, but I wanted to say another thing, which it struck me as I was reading your book, uh, the serenity prayer, and uh, uh, which uh, refers to God, but uh, that's not to whom I, I say it. It's to me. Uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Beautiful. How much of that is relevant to this rewiring, this ability to influence and change? I think it's hugely, hugely relevant because from as best I can tell and as best as my hypothesis, so to say, of, of what we have influence over works, we have so many choices. And so we have to figure out ultimately what is that litmus or measuring stick by which we will make these choices. And so when we look at all of the things we really can't influence, which is quite a lot actually, um, even the things we have the perception we are the mastermind behind, science might suggest otherwise, that a lot happens on a pre-conscious basis. Um, and so I think when we really look at um, what our choices are with regard to what we have influence over half the battle is figuring out what we want. You know, what, mm -hmm. what are our value set that we're going to make these decisions by how we're going to show up in the world? What's important to us. So I love the prayer. And I think, um, we all would do well to consider more deeply, you know, what are the mental models and beliefs that are guiding you know, usually on a pre-conscious or um, habitual basis, what we what we show up and do each day, how we yeah, treat it, the world. In that awareness, that is that ability to identify the patterns and to check. Oh, that is a habit, or that is a thought that I have, and and to be able to step a step away from yourself to observe that thinking. So. Um, Really, when I think of reading your book, I, I kind of got the feeling, and I'm going to make a parallel with uh, another book that I absolutely adored back in the day. It was called You Just Don't Understand, Men and Women in Conversation. Uh, and it was a remarkable book. And I had such fun discussing it with the 16 other female students in my class. But they all read it. And they said, well, yeah, we get that. Well, yeah. We understand the people who need to read it, <laughs> the other, the other ones, <laughs> los hombres. And, and so I, with your book, there's a, some, this feeling I have, well, there are the people who already are, they've got their conscious awareness. They're sort of layering into it. And like you say, best you can, it maybe takes more than a lifetime to get it all, but you're doing your best. You're doing pretty, you're pretty much on the, on the case. You might've gone to Tibet and studied some Buddhism and so on. Then you have the people who are ready. I want to get into that in a second. But then really the problem is the people who aren't ready, who actually need to read it the most. Yeah. Yeah. So true. how do we get how do we get them in on this gig? Because if I'm already open and I'm in, I'm in it, then I'm I'm a fast track. I'm going to read your book, I'm going to devour it. Cool. But mm -hmm. at some level, the issue is what's the argument that's going to help these people who are stuck in their ways, acting like monsters or bad bosses or unhappy people at work and, oh, well, that's just the way it is, or that's the way I have to be. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, that is the million dollar question. Um, not just for book sales. <laughs> right, no, right, no, not at all. In fact, it's really the heart of my business and, and you know, our trying to um, explain this work in a way that can be understood by someone who has no aspiration to become emotionally intelligent, um, uh, let alone consciously aware or whatever the case may be. And somehow when you were asking the question, I, I, I thought about the conflict that's going on right now in Ukraine uh, with, with Russia and you know where I imagine Putin would be coming from mentally. I somehow equated the two. But anyway, um, I think we each have to have a motivation to do anything we do that that requires effort. And this is uh, this work that I do and that I'm trying to teach people about requires a lot of effort, and therefore a lot of either inherent interest in believing that this is worthwhile or some motivation. So I always like to sort of give this example around what causes a person to uh, embark and, and then sustain the momentum needed for behavior change. And my belief about it is that it's like a candle that we hold in our hand. And if we put our other hand on the top of the candle quite tightly, we're going to feel burned and we'll want to remove our hand quite quickly. There's an impetus, there's a motivation, there's a pain, so to say. It's a symbol, really, a metaphor sure. for the circumstances that need to come together just so in our life to be motivated to do things we wouldn't otherwise be interested in doing. But most of the time, the metaphor is not quite like that. It's more that our hand is just enough above the flame to be something we can adjust to the discomfort of, but isn't enough uh, to actually motivate the level of effort, sustained effort needed to make meaningful change in any area, not just this area, but any area where any kind of learning, skill development, behavior, or habit is involved. So this is all to say we can't make other people be interested. And unless we take it to the language of, do you care what you have influence over? Do you want to have influence in your own life in as many ways as possible? That's been the only door in that I've been creative enough to think about which I don't know that it's that creative, by the way, but it seems an obvious door in. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So... In my worldview, I'm thinking that a lot of these individuals typically are sitting in positions of power, 
and have gotten there through a methodology and successfully, great. <laughs> But one of the ways that they are typically primed to think is, well, what's the output? What's the result? Right. What, what is your Valhalla in all this? All right, I do a little hard work and, and, and then what? You know, right. What's the transactional <laughs> What benefit? That? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, uh, for me, we could talk about transactional benefit within any context, but simply put, I think it would be the ability to have choicefulness in one's own life over the things you actually have the ability to influence. Um, and so if you equate this back to sort of real world activity, it's, you know, do you like the outcomes you're getting? You know, do you like the quality of relationships you have in your life, both at work and home? Do you like the results you're getting? And if the answer is no, then surely there must be a cause for why you're not getting those results. And so my work takes that back down to, again, what is it that we intrinsically can have agency over within ourselves to be able to set ourselves on a trajectory to be best positioned to get the kinds of outcomes and relationships we ultimately want to have. Certainly no guarantee. We're not the only variable, but it sure is increasing the odds. And I, I suspect that people who are lost or unhappy can see that there's a, an idea of a benefit. Oh, if I do this, maybe I can achieve a higher level of happiness. Great. Mm. the work that I do is mm -hmm. most often with senior executives mm -hmm. and their impact on a culture and the, let's say, fulfillment anyway, of their mm -hmm. employees is so important. Yeah. And, and what I kind of see is that mm -hmm. these are the people who actually may, maybe say, well, oh, I look at me, I've got my houses, I've got my three wives and, uh, you know, lots of cars and people think of me as the boss. So back to your points, what are my relationships? Well, you know, I've had lots of love in my life. I've, I've got people who, who have high esteem for me. Look at, or I look at the houses and the chateaus and cars I have. Mm -hmm. And then when they get to a, another age, yeah. and all of a sudden they look around and I'm no longer the CEO. And right. actually, I don't really like these hangers on. And I'm not so thrilled with the life I've made. And then they, and they still may need to go out and buy another Ferrari and, and change lives. But these individuals need to have a wake-up call that says, you know, actually what you've been doing, the, the path that you've been leading to get to where you are needs to change now, not when you're unhappy. Because what you can do is you can affect other people's changes and allow them to bring in themselves and be more themselves. So these are the people I think are the hardest to reach because they're, they're high and mighty and yeah. my ego is huge and I'm not listening. Yeah. And that's the example really of the candle, right? They need a um, crucible moment, um, a hand very close to the candle, something that really shifts, um, causes them to move off their position. Um, that or so much mental discomfort or dis-ease for them to want to do something about it. And 
you know, if they believe that it is possible actually to create um, an internal world, uh, mental states that are conducive, irrespective of outer circumstances or all the belongings they may have or all of the status, et cetera, et cetera, when it starts to feel a little shaky on the inside, and that's not something they can do anything about, that can also be an impetus for doing this work. Um, but often to your point, short of one or more of those things happening, it often just doesn't happen because we still live in a world that uh, rewards um, success at all costs, where um, we haven't yet reached the stage of business as uh, fully agents of world benefit. Um, and so we're still, you know, a little upside down with regard to the value proposition of what people have been allowed to create without consequence. Yeah, I, th I think if you look at the word good, you know, I make a good living. That's sort of the level of good that we've got. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michelle, you've been doing this work for quite a while. You've had your moments in corporate life, which is why I wanted to lean into this component mm -hmm. of it, because I'm sure you, you've seen that up close. It, do you feel that at some level in the world, in Western world anyway, perhaps mm -hmm. in Tibet too, I don't know, <laughs> that we've kind of hit a crucible moment in the world, or has this moment just been coming along and simmering along a long time, and today we're talking about it because you just launched a book, or do you really feel that there's mm -hmm. an opportunity that we're actually at at a decision mode uh, where things will go as you use, I think you use well, the pear shape, more worse shape than uh, where, you know, really things could explode if we don't really do this work. Yeah. Hmm. I think, I think there comes a time when, when we do hit these sort of critical moments. And I do, I do believe we are at a critical juncture in more than one way with the environment, with, um, what's happening right now in Ukraine, where we can see that um, we still live in a world where uh, democracies can be demolished right in front of the rest of the world's eyes um, with no real plan to, to figure this out. Um, and so I, I think the inflection point and what tech actually has, has done to accelerate, exacerbate, highlight where we've each arrived at I think is this place of incredible mental distraction, incredible mental dis-ease or unease that creates a kind of restlessness that is um, now bubbling up in all shapes and forms. Um, mental illness, PTSD, all of these nuances where we actually have to be with ourselves and realize it. Um, so I think, you know, the people who wake up and realize this is not the life I want to be leading, and I'm not going to lead it this way anymore, then that momentum creates, it undermines the, the foundation that, that most corporations have relied on and been based on for generations, which is this idea that we can do profit at all costs, 
that we can do short-term shareholder gains without really looking at the downstream impacts of our actions. Um, I think those days will hopefully be up soon. I just, I also know that people love money and um, things that are, are extrinsic motivators. So I don't know what it will take. And I don't know if we won't destroy ourselves uh, quicker than the reverse happens. I, I'm not convinced. I, I don't know one way or the other. I don't know. One of the things that uh, struck me, Michelle, as I was reading your book was um, the notion that what goes for the individual goes to the society as far as the solution is concerned, or that's how I paraphrase. Can you explain yeah. to me that thought? Yeah, sure. So I don't believe we can create systems that are any smarter than how we're each geared individually to perceive reality. And, and so, you know, people create businesses, people create um, policies and governments and systems of government. Um, and artificial intelligence. <laughs> absolutely. And so we, we create in many ways a reflection of where we're at as individuals. And, and yet what's so fascinating is that what creates the individual actually in real terms, in terms of what we understand about the neuroscience piece of perception and emotion are very much what we've learned from our social influences. And of course, we know that's not just our closest family, but the many contexts that we each have growing up throughout our lives. And so that is the way the collective deeply imprints and impacts the individual. But we cannot undo that, I believe, except at an individual level, on an innermost level. You're not going to do that work for me. I can read a brilliant book, and that's awesome. That's intellectual understanding. But unless I'm really going to change something for myself by way of how I perceive reality, make sense of reality, and then act on that perception and understanding, then no part of my output will be different. It will just simply be a collective reflection of what I've learned and or what I'm doing unconsciously. So I really think it's a both and proposition. And I'm not sure that one or the other could be fully done um, in, in an acceptable uh, way, in an improved way. Yeah, without, without you know, sort of that bi-directional influence that we have. So again, probably like everything, as I listen to you, I'm sort of trying to analyze myself and, mm -hmm. and observe mm -hmm. my biases as I go into this, but I, I've tried to also be explicit about my biases. So sure. I come from Europe where I, at least I spent most of my life over here. And the story goes, uh, I used to run a lot. I was very athletic and, and staying in shape. I'd go for runs and every once in a while I'd come back and, and uh, my, the, front of my bottom part of my legs, the shins would hurt. Yeah. And, and, uh, oh, well, you know, oh, damn, all right, get over it. Mm. And I got to America and I went to a, a school in America and I went on a run because I was still being athletic and I came back, oh, damn, it hurts. What hurts? Well, I, this, this part of my, oh, you have shin splints. 
I was told. I have what? There's a name for it. It's called shin splints. Oh, oh my goodness. And my observation was the naming of something mm-hmm. made it bigger. And, and therefore I had a right to complain about it because, oh, I have this thing called shin splints. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was the beginning of a long discovery of other things that I didn't know existed, or at least didn't have a name when I was brought up. <laughs> and, and today we've got to such a point where mental health is yeah. so rampantly off yeah. the charts, bad. Yeah. Great things are within this. You know, I, I did a film in the Second World War, so I, I've interviewed many, many veterans who came back from war and this concept of PTSD. I get yeah. it. Yeah. At the same time, if you talk to the World War II veterans, this was not a vocabulary that they had. And they just said, you know, basically their idea was get on with it. You know, you right. have dirt sure. on your knees. We don't have a name for that. Yeah. That's called messing around. That's called life. Yeah. And, and to the extent it. that we've gone into this naming of everything thing, it, it's actually not me. It's a, it's a label. It's this, mm-hmm. this other thing. Mm-hmm. And then I can take a pill to fix that thing. Right, right. As opposed to maybe looking a little bit more systemically at yeah. it as part of life. And actually life is challenge and the way you overcome the challenge as opposed to putting a sticker and getting a blue pill. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I really, I, there, look, there are many methods for working with one's emotions and mental states um, most of which, by the way, for most of us are temporary. And um, coming from the Buddhist philosophy and, and background, we don't label the marbles. Mm. And if the marbles are thoughts, feelings, emotions, they're just mental movement. When you get into labeling, you're going to be labeling a while. And you can get caught up in the labels, you can get caught up in this and that. And it's a whole world of distraction and elaboration in and of itself. Or we could just dump out all the marbles. And we could, you know, in in the sort of metaphor of thinking or, or any kind of temporary mental movement of which all thought, emotion, sensations are, they go away. So we can pay attention, we can learn their texture, we can name it, we can name it 200 different things, I don't care. But it doesn't necessarily mean it will stop it from coming back. So I think the um, king of all methods or queen um, is to notice the mind that experiences the movement and sever it at its root. Um, Now you may have to do that a lot, um, but it's a different method. And so what really resonated with me about what you said is that uh, my youngest son was diagnosed with autism at quite an early age. We never said the word around him. Um, And I'm not saying I didn't educate myself, but we didn't use labels because I, I felt that he would behave to the label. Um, he is a tremendous young man and irrespective of any progress 
or uh, accomplishment he would or would not have made wouldn't change my feeling about this. I, I made a concerted choice not to label. And I think he's a hell of a lot better off for it. And that's just our personal kind of history around that particular label. And if you met him, you, you really, you just wouldn't know any of that. You wouldn't know any of that. Um, so I, I, I agree with you and um, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I um, and it makes me think, of course, uh, inciting people to read the way your intro with um, your grandmother Harriet, right? Yeah, yeah. What a character she right? must have been! Oh my goodness! And uh, so many kids, and and then your grandfather who went to the Second World War, yeah. And uh, and what that means uh, for one's life, I, I certainly saw that up close myself. Wanted to, um, I guess I had so many other questions. I really wanted to get uh -huh. into empathy because that's a big topic for me. Uh, you talk about it a fair number of times in the book, but um, yeah, the, the last thing really to leave us with is right. Yeah, get yourself conscious awareness. Get, get know who you are. How do you know when you know? Who yeah, you are? good point. Well. I think this is what I, my whole life's journey has been about. And um, I'll, I'll take it back to a story um, of the first time I met my teacher, who is still my teacher today. His name is Chokini Marimpache. And I met him in Bodhgaya, India, when I was doing this academic uh, study abroad program uh, in my 20s. And you know, he, he had come at the end of the program after we'd learned a bit about meditation and the different schools of Buddhist thought. And he, every, every night he'd give these um, really detailed instructions, meditation instructions. Um, and I, I'm a kind of learner where I like to write everything down, you know, can't miss a beat. Right. Um, but at some point my pen ran out of ink and he saw this and he could see this was very like troubling to me because yeah. he's continuing to teach. And he reached inside of his robe and pulled out his pen and he threw it to me and I caught it. And I didn't just catch the pen, but it was very much the moment where I feel that I caught a glimpse of what I like to call the natural face of our own mind our own awareness, free from elaboration, just as it is, albeit for a very short period of time. But I could never really unsee it. And so now my whole life has just been a practice of connecting again and again with short glimpses of who we are naturally without effort. We don't have to cultivate anything. We just have to observe and use that superpower that we all intrinsically have. That moment of catching the pen, it seems like there was a sort of a spark at that moment. Yeah. It was a new kind of seeing. I, I personally think psychedelics are a tremendous way of opening that door to understanding who you are in a context, uh, the littleness of us 
in a world which helps to get rid of or at least diminish some of the ego, not get rid of it because we need the ego. Sure. Um, otherwise, we'd have no explorers, right? Or, but um, <laughs> the idea of of who we are, of course, is abstract and, and it's never perfect. It's certainly never a full hundred percent view. Mm-hmm. However, making that part of your journey maybe is the most important thing to do is get on that track and and allow for honest feedback and and somehow get into reading your book um michelle so how can people uh follow you or of course get the book what what would be the ways you'd like to sign off on this yeah thank you so um the book is available really at all major outlets amazon being kind of the 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 bigger of them all um but also if you're interested in connecting with me with my work um beyondei.inc is our website and we have handles on all the major social media outlets and you can also reach out to me personally i have also all the same uh michelle navarez and um That's happy to connect E-L-E, and talk about michelle ele yes one l michelle mybel Très bien. Um, With that, huge thank you, Michelle. Beautiful. Thank you so much for doing that. And um, that was a studio audience. We will be in touch. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, Rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodile.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Precipitating the danger to feel
trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man here in these confines a convinced man in the arms of a woman I'm a convinced man bit to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.